Hello, folks, and welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. It's an exciting time of year for many. Uh, lambs are hitting, a, hitting the ground all across the United States, and a, and a healthy and robust lamb crop certainly has major economic benefits in the short term. But as we look to the future, this sheep generation also represents a chance to improve the genetics of our flocks. Genetic selection and animal production goals are going to mean something different to everybody. But as lambs are being born and raised through the spring, this presents a perfect opportunity to collect performance information that will help move our flocks in a desirable direction. Collecting records at lambing is something that many of us already do. But we've all been there, at least I know have, I have, where we get in a groove of collecting the same information in the same way for multiple years without a clear idea of what exactly we're going to do with that data. So here joining me today is Dr. Tom Murphy, a research geneticist with USDA and Clay Center in Nebraska, to hopefully set the record straight, pun intended, on organized, goal-oriented performance data collection during lambing and through the lamb rearing process. So, Dr. Murphy, thanks so much for being with us here today. Well, thanks, Jake, and I look forward to our discussion here today. Great. Uh, and, you know, I introduced you briefly here, but Dr. Murphy, before we get into more of our podcast, would you mind expanding a bit on your background and how you came to be a sheep geneticist for the USDA? Sure, yeah. So like you said, uh, I'm currently a sheep geneticist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service, Clay Center, Nebraska, at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center. Uh, I grew up in Nebraska, went to the University of Nebraska for both my bachelor's and master's degree in animal sciences, and there really uh, got exposed to uh, kind of the theory as well as the practical side of of uh, selecting individuals to improve our flocks or our herds. And, and specifically, I got, you know, developed a passion for applying quantitative genetic principles to proving sheep production. And unfortunately, at that time, uh, we didn't have a researcher doing sheep research work at Nebraska. So luckily for me, I uh, was really uh, fortunate to get a PhD assistantship with one of our greatest. Uh, academic mentors for, for sheep scientists in the U.S., Dr. Dave Thomas, now retired. I uh, went up to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for four years, where I uh, mostly focused on the genetic improvement of dairy sheep, utilizing historical records collected on our uh, uh, dairy sheep research flock at the Spooner Ag Research Station, but did a couple of other projects, meat and wool sheep uh, closer to campus at Arlington. Um, but Really, the best part about Wisconsin was some of the people I interacted with really become involved in NSIPCA and a lot of those producers. Uh, Rusty Burgett was the shepherd up at Spooner at that time. Uh, Taylor still is the shepherd at Arlington. Both of those uh, men have really important roles today in, in sheep genetics in the U.S. Uh, probably one of the most important people I met, though, in Wisconsin was my wife. And after we uh, got I got my PhD. We moved all the way to Bozeman, Montana, where I was an assistant professor of sheep production at Montana State University for about two and a half years. And, and uh, there was exposed not only to more extensive rangeland production systems, but also a lot more uh, colleagues, be that 
Montana wool growers or Whit Stewart at Montana State at that time, Fred Taylor at the Sheep Experiment Stage. And so that really gave me the, the other side of sheep production in the U.S. besides farm flock um, that really makes you think, uh, how can we apply a good data recording program when we might only get a handle on our use two or three times a year? How can we best utilize those times that we do see our sheep to make a consistent genetic improvement? And then, uh, like you said, uh, after that, I, I went to uh, Play Center, Nebraska, where I've been for about three and a half years and solely doing sheep genetics work now. And uh, most of my research focuses on quantifying novel traits or traits that we don't currently have available to us in NSIP, but we can kind of develop genetic tools that might be able to utilize to uh, improve some of these more difficult to measure traits. Cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. And it's it's neat that you were able to kind of come full circle and, and come back home to, to Nebraska. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so before we uh, dive into specifics, maybe, can you talk about some of the key concepts in, in genetic improvement and how they may differ uh, depending on the types of traits a, a producer is interested in changing in, in their flocks or in their animals? Yeah, so uh, I'll probably be throwing out a lot of different terminology today that I guess I should probably just go ahead and define. And usually when I'm presenting to producers, I've got, you know, slides and equations to show them, but uh, I'll just go through some of these words that we'll talk about today and, and, and they'll come up throughout the rest of this discussion. So genetic improvement really begins with an animal's or a group of animals phenotypes, what we refer to their actual performance for a given trait that we can see or measure. So if we're interested in number of lambs born, a used phenotype can be zero lambs, a single lamb, a set of ten, so forth. And an animal's phenotype that we actually measure is a realization of both the gene variants that they carry that can impact their trait, that trait, and it's due to all of the non-genetic factors that can influence performance. The most economically important traits in sheep production, they're not just controlled by a couple of genes like we you know, tend to think about when we go out and see animals that we like uh, in the field. That phenotype that's controlled uh, by genes, usually there's hundreds or even thousands of genes that are impacting an animal's phenotype. And, and each of them might have a really small impact on that animal's performance, but they can add up to show us really large differences in performance and genetic value between individuals. And so going back to number of lambs born, we've got genes that control ovulation rate and genes that control uterine environment and embryo survival and field development and so on and so forth. All of those add up to show us what we observe as number of lambs born. Right. But we know that there's a ton of non-genetic environmental effects that can impact these economically important traits. And for number of lambs born, we know that could be you age is a big contributor, the season that we breed used, uh, whether we provided a flushing diet. All of those are non-genetic effects. They're environmental. They're not passed on to future generations, but they can impact performance in really 
cloud of how we decide whether one animal is genetically superior than another. So, so what this means is that when we pair the phenotypes of two or more individuals, it can be really challenging to say which animal's higher performing because it had a better set of gene variants or which might have been higher performing because it had a more favorable environmental effect. Right. And so another word I use a lot, interchangeable, everybody uses interchangeably with genetic value is breeding value. This is just referring to an animal's individual uh, uh, a value as a parent for a particular mm-hmm. And uh, we're not actually able to measure an individual's true breeding value or their genetic merit for traits. But just like anything that we can't measure with absolute certainty, we can make a prediction or an estimation of it. And in the case of breeding values, we call those estimated breeding values or EBVs. And so just like any estimation, accuracy matters. Sure. Uh, and in, in particular to EBVs, the accuracy of how well we're assessing an animal's genetic merit is dependent on a couple of things. One being the amount of information that goes into that estimate. So in our most common example in sheep production, phenotypic selection, where we might just go out and physically evaluate an individual's own phenotype, say weaning weight or number of lambs born, and try to infer their genetic merit for that. Or in the case that we have in the National Sheep Improvement Program, where our EBVs are calculated uh, based on performance records from not just that individual, but all of its genetic relatives. So, so as we increase the amount of information that goes into our genetic predictor, uh, we increase the accuracy of the EBV. And the other thing that impacts the accuracy of EBV is the traits heritability. And uh, heritability is a really important concept in genetic improvement. It's just the number that ranges from zero to one and it tells us the strength of the relationship between an individual's phenotype that we can measure and their breeding value that we're unable to measure. And for low heritable traits, like number of lambs born or survival type traits, that, that tells us that most of the differences we see phenotypically among individuals is due to environmental differences between those individuals and not genetic differences. So uh, an animal's own phenotype for that trait doesn't generally serve as a really good indicator of their genetic merit. On the other hand, we have some traits with high heritability, like our fleece traits, fiber diameter, fleece weight. In those traits, the environment still has an impact, but much much less so than than our low heritable traits. So an animal's phenotype for those highly heritable traits actually gives us a pretty good indicator of their genetic merit for those traits. So to bring it all home, the key to a good genetic improvement program is being able to separate out an animal's genetic value from those environmental effects. And not all of our traits are the same. Some are more heavily impacted by the environment and have a lower heritability than others. And how accurately we're able to infer an animal's genetic value increases with adding more information to our estimate and in, in, in for trade.
Awesome. That's a, that was a great answer. That was, that was a semester's worth of information boiled <laughs> down into five minutes. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> now, now to, to kind of follow that up though, uh, you know, we're looking at the, the yearly cycle of, of sheep production, you know, when does performance recording or, or, you know, collecting phenotypic information, when does that start and, and what makes the period around lambing and, and while lambs are being reared by their mothers, what makes that such a great opportunity to catch all this data and information? Yeah, so really an animal's genetic value for all of its traits for the rest of its life starts at conception. So as soon as that egg and sperm meet, that animal's genetic value is more or less fixed for the rest of its life. So really our performance recording begins at mating. When we turn rams out with our ewes to form the next season's lamb crop, being able to know an individual lamb's dam and their sire goes a really long way in how accurately we're able to assess the genetic right. and later on determine if, if we want to keep them as selection right. candidates. But we know that sometimes it's not feasible for all producers to single sire mate their use. You know, individual breeding pens can be expensive. Uh, and we know that Multiple sire mating use generally improves overall flock fertility. So this can present challenges when we don't know the sire of the lamb, and, and, and we can't know that without running DNA parentage testing, which is an option but can be expensive. And it sometimes is even challenging to assign a lamb dam if we're pasture or range lambing, and we can't go out and bag fresh lambs, or we don't want to disrupt the bonding process. But uh, without knowing and recording individual lambs' IDs and being able to link them at a very minimum to their use ID, we're, we're really limited in what we can achieve in our right. genetic improvement program. So, so it begins at breeding, but you know, capturing records from lambing to weaning is a really important time point because most of our economically important traits in our flock tend to be associated with reproductive efficiency of use, such as number of lambs weaned or total weight of lamb weaned, lamb survival. Those are our really economically important traits that are observed from lambing weaning. And it's also really one of the few times a year that a lot of us can closely observe our ewes uh, right. and, you know, determine how good of a mother they are. Did they need assistance during lambing? How good was her udder, and a lot of those other things. So, uh, if we focus in most of our data recording to that key time from lambing to weaning, uh, that goes a really long way for genetic improvement. Okay, great. Right. So, you know, we're we're going to collect this information. We're we're geared up around lambing. We're we're ready to collect some data and and whatnot. But before we do that. Can you talk with us about how to identify, you know, some areas of needed improvement in our flock so that we know that we're collecting really prudent and, and pertinent information in a way that'll really help us? Sure. Yeah. So before you make improvement or any change to your operation, you really, you have to first know where you're starting at. Uh, and you need to have a, a good idea of what your environment or your skill set can handle in terms of performance of your, of your lamb crop. If you want to shoot for a 
lamb crop, that's great. But if you're not set up for that, you can have a wreck pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, Optimize versus maximize, right? For sure. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, you know, this discussion is about genetic improvement, but it's also important to make improvements to our environment. Uh, and sometimes it's easier to make flock improvement through environmental. And if you want to improve weaning weights, you can creep feed your lambs or change up your current creep feeding uh, ration. And that'll, that'll show itself and improve weaning weights and survival of those lambs. But uh, if you stop doing that practice, you know, you hold the creep feed next year, your performance is going to go back to where you started. The great thing about genetic improvement is that once you've made it, it's permanent in your flock. You're always going to have it unless, you know, you, you start slowly going backwards by making improper selection decisions. So once we know what our end goal for improvement is, you know, how quickly we're able to get there realistically is dependent on a couple of different things we refer to as the key equation in, in uh, animal breeding. And it's dependent on our, our genetic progress is depending on how accurate our estimates of breeding value are, or genetic merit is, accuracy of EPVs that we talked about. It's dependent upon how much genetic variation exists in our flock. If there's not a lot of variation out there, we're going to have a pretty tough time at, at, at moving our average of our, our flock performance. Uh, how quickly we're able to make progress is also determined on how intensively we want to select for replacing animals. And it's also dependent on how long or short our generation interval is in our flock. So for, for things in that equation that are kind of under our control as sheep producers, if we want to maximize our genetic gain for any trait, we want to make sure that we're identifying animals with high accuracy estimated breeding values. We want to make sure that we're we're pretty choosy at what animals we're selecting as replacement animals. You really want to be uh, intensively selecting. You've got you know your top two percent of rams that you're going to keep as replacement animals, and maybe your top twenty uh, percent of ewe lambs. Uh, and and. And if you really want to make genetic progress, you also have to be willing to turn over your generation interval more rapidly. If you're replacing, uh, you know, otherwise sound but older ewes with a younger generation, that younger generation should be uh, genetically superior to your older generation. So obviously, there's a lot of give and take there, right? We sometimes we can't be as intense in our selection as we want to be, or sometimes it just doesn't pencil out to get rid of older, but otherwise healthy and productive use to replace them with younger use that are probably going to be lower performing, although they're genetically superior because they're younger use. So all of those are going to impact whether or not you can make 1% improvement per year or 10% improvement per year. Right. And you see a lot of times that breeders get frustrated if they haven't seen a noticeable improvement in their flock in five years. But Right. Progress is measured in generations of sheep, not necessarily years. So five years from now, you've probably still got the same years you started with. You haven't turned over that generation. So it's a long game genetic improvement is, and the key to being successful is remaining consistent every single year. Right. So you mentioned some things in, in that answer about, you know, looking at, at rams or ewe lambs that are in the top 
you know, five, 10% for some particular traits. And, and so I think of that as, you know, really focusing on identifying and keeping the best animals. But how about genetic selection from the stance of using this to just eliminate the lowest performers in our flock? Is there a, a better approach? Is there a balance between, oh, I should always try to uh, find identify the best animals or should I try to identify, you know, potentially the, the poorest quality animals and, and eliminate those? And how do we balance all that? And, and what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, so both of those are important. Selection of replacement animals and culling of, of older, inferior animals. Or yeah. or they don't have to be older, just inferior animals. So, sure. you know, we're, we're practicing artificial selection here. And it's got two aspects, really two sides of the same coin. Selection of replacement animals and culling of animals that you don't want to be parents anymore in your flock. And it's important to really objectively assess uh, the entirety of your breeding sheep inventory and cull those that aren't meeting your breeding objectives. Getting rid of that bottom 10, 20%, whatever it is, is important, but culling alone is not genetic improvement. You're always going to have a bottom 20%, right? So uh, the, 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 Real key is to practice culling, but when you cull those animals, to make sure that you're bringing in a set of replacements that are genetically superior to those culls and genetically superior to the remaining average of the flock uh, through selection. That's really where uh, genetic improvement comes from, is the balance between both culling and selection to uh, replace the top end of Okay. Great. So again, if we kind of go back to this uh, lambing time period, you know, what types of data uh, should, you know, every sheep producer, even, you know, the most extensively managed range operations or, or flocks, what should those, uh, what should producers be striving to, to collect during this, this lambing period? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, one of the most important trait complexes for for anybody raising sheep in the U.S. is uh, reproductive efficiency of our ewes. You know, are they being bred? Are they bringing home lambs to us? How many lambs are they weaning? What's the total weight of lamb weaned for you exposed? And, you know, beginning there and being able to identify those ewes that just aren't performing for you is, is really important. And, and so at a minimum, this requires being able to pair up lambs with their birth dam or their rearing dam, if you drafted lambs, and and perhaps if you if you want to assess uh, you know weight of lamb produced per you, uh, getting a weight of those lambs at weaning. Okay, so then now let's think of you know I, I want to ask you I guess more from like a more intensively managed flock. You know, are there more traits or more information they would start to include in this? Uh, this data collection uh, to help kind of build upon that? Sure. Yeah. So, so definitely those reproductive performance traits are still important in intensively managed operations and, and even more so because they generally have greater input costs to run those operations and, and they have their own set of challenges, mostly, you know, being able to, to, to balance uh, different, you know, building spaces and whatnot to get those views moved through there. Uh, so in addition to the reproductive performance of those individual ewes, uh, they might have more opportunities if they've got the right setup and, and good data recording equipment 
to start to look at things like planning ease of those ewes, uh, how good of mothers those ewes were, uh, utter confirmation and health of those ewes, you know, was she producing adequate milk? How was lamb vigor? Uh, you know, when we bring in those those ewes and lambs to more intensive operations where we might have a, a closer eye on them, uh, we can start to consider some of those traits that extensive operations might not be able to get a good handle on. Okay. And I guess I want to follow that right up with, okay, so let's, let's move up to a, a highly motivated seed stock operation. Now, what are they, they collecting or what are they going to do with those records to, to really maximize the, the information that they can, they can get it from them? Yeah. So, you know, the bottom line is not everybody should be a seed stock producer. Not everybody wants to be a seed stock producer, but, but, but we need them. And those really highly motivated, progressive seed stock will tell you it's not easy uh, to get those best of the best breeding animals. You really have to be willing to put in that extra work of, of real diligent data recording on top of everything else that goes on in the sheep operation. So, so for NSIP producers at a minimum, that's going to be lamb birth date or, you know, somewhat close to a lamb's birth date. Uh, their sire and dam's ID, if, if you've got individual mating pens or you've used DNA parentage to determine that. Uh, the birth and rearing type of that lamb. And then body weights from weaning and up through possibly yearling age. If, if you've got them. So those are really the bare essential to get you in the door of NSIP. And then there's additional traits that might be dependent on what kind of breed type you're, you're raising or your production environment, like ultrasound, loin muscle, and back fat, really important uh, and popular with terminal fire sheep producers and other sheep producers as well. Uh, we can measure scrotal circumference on our rams, uh, fecal egg counts, if, if you've got uh, internal parasitism that you're dealing with, fleece weights and fiber diameter and, and a whole other slew of, of fiber traits if you're interested in wool production. Uh, so really building those into NSIP uh, is where those most progressive producers have uh, really made a lot of uh, improvement. And, and then genetic improvement programs aren't static. Hopefully we're, we're starting to include new traits every once in a while. And so seed stock producers should really be ready to start collecting them uh, once those new traits come on board and, and are able to be collected. So thinking about investing in you know, data collection, mining type uh, technologies is, is important to do as a seed stock producer. Right. Now, with that said, you know, is there such a thing as, as collecting too much data or too much information? Can can people get in, themselves into trouble by just recording everything? Sure. Well, you know, I'm a scientist, so more data is always better, right? But uh, no, I think, you know, like you said in your intro, you really have to think about what you're doing with your data and the amount of time that, that you've put into data collection. If you note every observation under the sun on your sheep, and then you just take that lambing book and it sits on a shelf in your office or on a computer, but and you never really use that data for anything. Maybe you should rethink 
your time as a producer to collect that data. So that might be a case where too many records can decrease the efficiency of your operation if you're not using those records. Uh, but you know, we we know that there's a pretty narrow window after lambing where ewes and lambs need to bond, and uh, if we don't allow that or we disrupt that too much because we're taking data, then there's an example where too many records might have been problematic. And, and uh, if this seems to be an issue, that producer can always you know, think about taking those those uh, records on lambs or maybe a day after they're born, not their actual birthday. You don't have to get a birth weight when they're soft and wet. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, we've seen this uh, at, at, at U.S. Mark here when we first started pasture lambing years ago before I got there, and we didn't have cheap ways of DNA parentage. The the way to obviously pair up lambs and, and use is go out every day and, and tag fresh lambs and get a weight on them. And and they'd run into some issues that, you know, use abandoning lambs or lambs wanting to follow you after you've process them and uh since then we've switched entirely to processing all of our lambs at once about two weeks of age a rangeland type production system and then we rely on on dna passage uh and so that's obviously a cost to us but uh one that that ensures we get good data and, and can improve welfare Sure. Okay. So, so what are the pros and cons of, of collecting data and just using this information for your own good and your own flock versus taking that data and, and rolling in a, in a program like the national sheep improvement program, which you've, you've referenced a, a couple times already. And, you know, what are the, what are the trade-offs there by, by, by taking those different approaches? Yeah. So, you know, the former of that, just kind of taking data in your own flock, we'd refer to that as within flock selection. And a pro there is uh, if you're able to collect enough data over time, you could start to calculate your own adjustment factor for environmental effects on performance. Like weaning weight, you could start to calculate uh, you know, what you observe as the difference between a ram lamb or weather lamb and a ewe lamb on weaning weight or what you observe on your operation for differences in weaning weights uh, for, between twins and singles or lambs reared by one-year-olds versus three, four-year-olds. So uh, those adjustment factors in this case would be specific to your operation. Whereas in NSIP, we kind of have to have more global adjustment factors that are uh, pretty accurate, but they've been ca- calculated by combining all of those records across flocks uh, of a specific breed type. But, uh, you know, most breeders don't have the, the adequate amount of data to create these own adjustment factors for themselves. And it doesn't generally have a huge impact as in terms of, you know, how much weight we put into the difference between a single versus a twin lamb as long as there is you know a clear uh, adjustment factor that goes in there uh, so the biggest con though with within flock genetic improvement is that if if you're entirely dependent on data generated within your own flock to make improvements then you're basically stuck only being able to accurately select 
displaced animals from within your own flock. And that not, might not be a problem if you've got a pretty large flock, but for smaller producers, you're going to eventually run out of genetic diversity. And so you go out and you buy a, a ram or, you know, instead of replacement, you use another breeder and you're kind of back to square one. You really don't know whether those animals are going to benefit your breeding program or if they've set you back for years to come without NSIP EBVs. So by far the biggest pro to NSIP is that it's an across-flock genetic improvement program. The, the strong genetic connections across NSIP flocks of a particular breed, as well as the, the methodologies that we've used and employed uh, in NSIP, are able to account for all of the non-genetic effects that might be specific to a particular farm or ranch. And so you can actually reliably compare EBVs of two animals that might have been born 2,000 miles apart, one in an accelerated lambing system in New York and one on the desert in you know, New Mexico. So that's really the, the strength of a cross-flock genetic evaluation program is being able to identify animals that uh, you might not have previously even considered to use as replacements in your operation. <laughs> Okay. And I want to take something, a little piece of something that you mentioned there uh, and expand on that uh, about purchasing animals with data, you know, for operations that are, that are buying breeding animals and, and whether those are animals that have EBVs or, or don't, you know, how do they measure whether they're, let's just use the instance uh, uh, of buying a Ram. How do they, how do they measure whether that Ram purchase was a good investment or not? Yeah, so you know, going back to a previous comment, uh, it's you got to have a good baseline for comparison, and you have to have a good yeah. data recording uh, program. Uh, so whether you're comparing the performance of say this ram from uh, two previous years rams, or you're comparing the performance of this ram with an, another ram that you have sired lambs on of that same lamb crop, uh, it, it that creates, you know, the baseline for, for comparison. And whether or not, you know, you've made a good investment depends on the breed type of the ram. If you purchase terminal rams, generate market lambs, the evidence of whether you've made a good investment is seen uh, in the difference in the, the number of lambs and the average weaning weight of two terminal rams. Uh, whereas if you're trying to compare two uh, maternal rams that you want to create replacement ewe lambs out of, then that's going to obviously take more time. You got to wait till those ewe lambs grow up and uh, produce lamb crops of their own. Um, but really, you know, determining whether you've made a good investment or not just comes down to uh, comparing uh, two or more rams and the progeny of them, and, you know, calculating differences among them. Uh, and performance to see whether or not that was a good investment or not. Okay. All right. So this isn't necessarily the case for everybody, but I wanted to come up with a, an example. Uh, you know, a ewe that can raise a healthy, heavy set of twin lambs five years in a row uh, is a pretty ideal standard, I'd say, for our industry, broadly speaking. You know, what data should a producer prioritize? Uh, to make progress in their flocks towards this 
benchmark of, of production. Yeah, if, if ever you in the U.S. could do that, it'd make my job a lot easier, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, again, these reproductive efficiency traits, improving them and getting that to a level is generally uh, going to result in, in the largest improvement in profitability and returns to our operation. So a trait like you know, number or weight of lamb weaned per you exposed is what we refer to as a deposit trait. It's composed of a lot of sub-traits, you know, right. few fertility, whether she got bread or did not get bread, prolificacy, how many lambs she gave birth to, her mothering ability and milk production, if she was able to raise those lambs. And then on the lamb side of things, that own individual lamb's survival and its growth. So there's a lot of traits in there that add up uh, to, to see what we measure as number of lambs weaned, but those are those are the ones I prioritize. Okay. So one that maybe in, in my mind is maybe a little more of a gray area. How about mothering ability? Is that a, you know, is that genetic? Is that behavioral? How how do you see that as a as a sheep geneticist and how do you measure that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's both. Or it is both. Um, but, you know, it kind of depends on what we mean by mothering ability. If we're just talking about milk production, you know, milk quality and quantity, those are pretty moderately heritable traits, 30 to 40 percent range. So we can make pretty good genetic improvement in milk production alone uh, by assessing it somehow. Uh, but uh for like maternal behavior traits, how attentive a you is to her newborns, those are more lowly heritable, less than 10% generally. And so uh, making progress in those traits uh, is, is a little more challenging. Okay. How about longevity? I know you longevity is um, something that uh, a lot of people really uh, appreciate and prioritize. Uh, how, what are kind of the genetic components that might go into the longevity or how long a you stays in the flock? Yeah, I, I think longevity really needs to be uh, at the forefront of a lot of producers' uh, minds. When we look at national stats, um, we see that about half of the U.S. U flock is cold every single year for reasons other than age, which means we couldn't keep them in the flock long enough to call them for age. And the most reason, the most common reasons why we're seeing ewes fall out. Um, most sheep producers are aware of. We call ewes because they didn't lamb. Uh, we call ewes because they got teeth problems. They developed other health issues like hard bag and mastitis. So there's a lot of, again, components that go into a ewes longevity. And uh, a really important component, though, is, is we don't generally just want long-lived use. That's important, but we need them to be long-lived and productive for us. So productive longevity is important. And uh, some of the, the non-genetic components that can impact you longevity would be like our nutrition program. Uh, pregnancy and lactation is physically demanding. If we're not providing a good mineral program or we're overgrazing, underfeeding energy and protein, that's going to show up likely as reduced longevity that you might not breed up as well the next year if we uh, haven't given her the proper nutrients to, to wean those heavy lambs. Um, if we're not up to date on our vaccination program, 
know, that's that can show up as uh, reduced longevity. Um, if you're shed lambing, use you know cleaning jugs and mixing pens out between batches, you're going to have a greater likelihood of of exposing that you to mastitis pathogens, for lambs to respiratory pathogens. Those are those those are non-genetic effects as well, and you know all of those things might not outright kill the ewe, but they're going to add up and take years off of her lifetime. And currently in NSIP, we don't have an EBV for longevity, but uh, hopefully with some work that we're uh, coming up with, uh, we can start looking to, looking into feasibility of improving longevity. Cool. Awesome. Okay. I, I want to stick with these traits that are maybe a little bit of a gray area. Uh, and a reason why a ewe is potentially not able to, to rear a lamb to weeding. And, and I'm curious to hear your take again as a geneticist and, and how you think that these should be handled, maybe from a, a keep coal standpoint. I don't know if that's too simplistic, but we'll go with it. So how about in the case of dystocia? Keep coal, genetic, non-genetic? Sure. Uh, yeah, so... We talked about phenotypes, you know, they're impacted by both genetic and non-genetic effects. And uh, we refer to those non-genetic effects broadly as environmental effects, but we can subcategorize environmental effects and uh, into, in, into different types of environmental effects. If we overfed our ewes in late gestation, and we had really heavy birth weights that impacted dystocia laminese, uh, that would be an environmental effect, but we call that a temporary environmental effect because uh, that's hopefully not going to be repeated next year. It just was unique to this particular lambing uh, season. But there's other environmental effects. They're non-genetic, but they are carried with the individual as they uh, you know, are observed for the same trait over and over year after year. So for dystocia, maybe a you just had a small birth canal, you know, small pelvic area. Maybe she had a vaginal prolapse. Maybe she's just got something going on where she lacks the ability to, to recognize labor-inducing hormones. And that, uh, that doesn't set her up for really good, uh, easy lambing. Some of those those are permanent environmental effects or can be. She's going to carry those environmental effects with her into future lambings. And so going back to heritability, that again just, just quantifies the genetic component of performance. We also have a term repeatability, which quantifies both the genetic component and the permanent environmental component that a U with her. Again, permanent environment, she's not going to pass on to future generations, but it's going to impact her performance. So getting back to the question, dystocia or laminese is a lowly heritable trait, usually less than 10%. So that use probably not carrying around a set of genes that's going to be passed on to future generations that are going to continue to have lambing problems. That's what those lowly heritable traits mean. But Laminese, and there hasn't been a ton of studies that have looked at it uh, nearly as much as the cavity, but 
they tend to be more moderately repeatable, uh, maybe 30% or so. So that means that a ewe that had problems lambing this year is is can't be more likely to have problems lambing next year. Again, not due to genetic effects, but due to those permanent environment effects. So, you know, if it's a really bad dystocia event, uh, hard pull, uh, you know, I'd take a, a good look at calling that you, but uh, I'm not really going to expect to make any genetic improvement in, in lambing ease by just removing that particular you from the flock. Okay. How about a you that has a stillborn lamb or a lamb that's dead at birth, or that lamb is, is killed, uh, let's say by a predator shortly after birth? How, how do you view those different situations? Yeah, so uh, past researchers have looked at, you know, total number of lambs born, that's going to include both live lambs and dead lambs, and then they only number of live lambs born. And both of those traits are, are lowly heritable traits. Again, not a ton of uh, genetic contributions to that trait, mostly caused by environmental differences in animals. So, uh, so lowly heritable traits, they obviously present some challenges for genetic improvement, but there's a silver lining and that's uh, that you shouldn't expect ewes that had dead lambs at birth again to be propagating some unfavorable gene variants into the flock for for uh, dead lambs at birth. But again, lowly heritable trait, and you know it kind of depends on how you look at expenses. On the one hand, this ewe's not going to generate any lambs if if she if she had stillborns uh, for sale, but uh, you've already incurred the cost of rearing her to reproductive age and, and through that pregnancy. So, you know, if you've got means of maintaining that you cheaply, I'd, I'd give her another shot at lambing next year. And then from predation standpoint, boy, I don't think there's ever been a study on genetic contributions to, to predation, but I would wager it's pretty low. Um, you know, you do see ewes that, that tend to keep their lamb closer by and they're more attentive to mothers. You know, maybe they'll huff and puff at a coyote, but you know, at the end of the day, if a if a predator wants to take a lamb, I'm not. There's not right. much of you can do. So, I don't. I don't like to uh, to, to punish a you that that her lambs have been taken by a predator, and and I I keep them around for another go. Okay, I appreciate that. For I appreciate you indulging me in in those scenarios. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna move on uh, now. I. Uh, you know, thinking about replacements and 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 whether that's ewe lambs or or ram lambs, it's easy to be drawn uh, to kind of the that big fleshy lamb at weaning um, to identify those as a keeper. Now, can you talk with us about whether there's a, a right or wrong strategy for replacement selection and how producers might prioritize which sheep get kept or not? Yeah, so you know, we talked uh, about weaning weight of lambs in regard to calculating their dams reproductive efficiency. So definitely the presence of a lamb at weaning as to whether it survived or not is important to capture. Uh, uh, and we do have adjustment factors to, to, to look at, uh, you know, some of the 
to account for some of the non-genetic effects that might go into a lamb's uh, weaning weight, for example. Um, we, uh, we can account for lamb differences that are due to sex, dam age by birth, rear type, uh, to get us a better, you know, accurate assessment uh, of the, the impact that their rearing situation had on them. And a lot of those adjustment factors are actually in your ASI shoe production handbook. So if handy, those are really important to, to, to consider. So with those, uh, we could, you know, accurately adjust a ewe lamb that might have been raised as a twin to a one-year-old ewe's weaning weight to the same level playing field as a ram lamb that might have been reared a single and by an old ewe and obviously is physically much larger than them. We can adjust for some of those uh, non-genetic effects uh, using the, those provided adjustment equations in your ASI handbook and uh, really make sure you're comparing apples to apples. On the NSIP side of things, those adjustments for uh, rearing situations uh, are uh, automatically accounted for. Okay, so thinking about that, comparing apples to apples, can you talk with us about what constitutes a, a contemporary group and why uh, you know forming those contemporary groups, particularly when we're talking about NSIP data, uh, why it's so important? Yeah, so you know. Uh, we talked about these non-genetic effects like sex, damage, rearing type, uh, but a really important non-genetic effect that should be accounted for is contemporary group. And the contemporary group is just a group of animals that experienced a similar environment when they were expressing whatever trait we're measuring. So uh, typically contemporary groups are comprised of animals that are reared and managed together in both time or space. Um, so if we're growing out lambs in different pens, paddocks, on pasture, we know that some pens are better draining or, you know, out of the wind and some paddocks have better forage or lower parasite load. So those uh, differences uh, in, in contemporary groups can amount uh, to a lot of the non-genetic effects on and, and NSIP has no way of knowing whether two animals were reared together or not. So we actually have to go in there and make sure we're providing that information. And, uh, you know, regardless if you're in NSIP or not, ultimately we need to compare individuals uh, from different genetic backgrounds, uh, but exposed to similar environments to really accurately assess genetic value. So making sure that you've got two or more sires represented in each contemporary group Otherwise, you know, you, it, the cards may have laid that uh, one ram's progeny were reared in a much better contemporary group than another, and, and you might inaccurately uh, call that ram genetically uh, superior. Okay. Okay, so we're, we're kind of starting to wrap up time-wise. You mentioned earlier about some some research that you have going on, uh, and so I'd like to you know ask you just to expand a little bit on that. Would you would you mind discussing with us about uh, the Sheep Gems Project uh, that I know that you're an uh, integral part of, and and what are kind of the goals of that initiative for the broader sheep industry? Yeah, so uh, Sheep Gems, uh, just 
term that's coined by a group of researchers. Uh, stands for genetic by environment, by management, by society interaction. Uh, this is a project led by Dr. Ron Lewis at University of Nebraska and, and Dr. Luis Brito at Purdue University. And then uh, myself and uh, Dr. Brad Frecking here at, at U.S. Park, also Genesis, uh, Dr. Joan Burke at uh, USDA Boonville, and Dr. Brett Taylor at USDA Du Bois, uh, Idaho. Um, we're all uh, collaborating with Ron and Louise. So uh, last year, we all went after a USDA grant to expand the utility of NSIP. And specifically, we want to start to develop genomic enhanced estimated breeding values for four uh, major breeds of sheep in NSIP, the Gapodin, Polypay, Rambolet, and Suffolk. And, and I think uh, Dr. Lewis and, and Lynn Farmer were on one of your podcasts talking more about genomic enhanced breeding values. So the other component of that project is to evaluate new traits for potential inclusion in NSIP. And uh, most of these traits are centered around what we've been discussing lamb survival, you uh, reproductive efficiency, you longevity, utter confirmation of health. And they're being measured on individuals across pretty diverse uh, production environments. Our three USDA locations, obviously Idaho, Nebraska, and Arkansas are pretty different production environments, uh, but we've got strong genetic uh, connections across our flocks of the same breeds. Um, and they're also a subset of these traits are also being measured in uh, collaborator slots. Um, so with that, we're hopefully going to, at the end of the project, have a better understanding on how we can best incorporate some of these traits, as well as that genomic information into NSIP and, and uh, you know, maybe start to look at identifying animals that are genetically fit to just a specific production environment or animals that are more resilient to changes in the environment. So yeah, cool. we're, we're pretty excited about it. That's that's really neat. I, I know our listeners are going to be really interested in, in following the progress uh, and, and hearing about some of the results over the next few years. So we've talked about a lot today, and I really appreciate you really expanding on on these questions and 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 really explaining kind of the nitty gritty details. Um, I, I guess for our listeners, would you mind just picking out a, a takeaway message, or or what should would you really like them to to take home from uh, what we've we've gone through today? Yeah, well, I've enjoyed the discussion. Uh, you know, I think the big takeaway messages are uh, if you want to improve your flock. You have to collect data. There's, you know, no amount of genetic technology that's going to come around that's going to overwrite taking data on your flock. We're always going to have to do that. Uh, it's important to to know that, you know, your eyes are often deceiving. You know, both of us were livestock judges in college. You know that what we visually appraise of an individual can only tell us so much. It's not right. really possible to say uh, that animal, that ram over there, I think he's going to be genetically superior for a number of lambs born in his daughter. You know, those, your eye can only tell you so much. So uh, don't rely on it too much. We need uh, more producers enrolled in the National Sheep Improvement Program. But that should be considered 
the gold standard for genetic improvement in the U.S. sheep industry. And if you're a feedstock producer, strongly consider joining NSIP so that you can more reliably market breeding animals that fit your commercial grower needs. If you're a commercial producer, you shouldn't be settling for just any ram that cover your ewes. Go out and look for NSIP breeding stock so that you can ensure that you're making real genetic improvement in your flock. Awesome. That's great advice, Dr. Murphy. I really appreciate you visiting with us today. Uh, we look forward to having you back on in the future at some point, if we can uh, hear about maybe some updates uh, on your research and, and, and some more of your uh, advice on genetic improvement. I, I think this has really been a tremendous discussion. So thank you very much again. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. So in my opinion, lambing use and listening to podcasts are two activities that are just meant for each other. Uh, so thanks to all of you who are tuning in from the barn or the pasture or even on your drive into work. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of the ASI Research Update, consider sharing it on social media uh, to help us get the word out. Uh, until we're back with a new episode next month, eat lamb, wear wool, and may your cup runneth over with the most profitable lamb crop you've ever raised. And there is a spreadsheet evidence to prove it. Have a nice day.